Here we go. This is the first time I have done this. Um, oh, I didn't, I didn't even turn on all my lights. Uh, let me first do the intro, then I'll fix my, my background stuff for you guys. But uh, the first time I've done this, and I went into this thinking I was going to be defending Joel Osteen actually a lot more than I am. I'm trying to give a fair analysis of a typical sermon from Joel Osteen. Um, how many of us have watched one of his sermons all the way through even? Like how many of you, like really carefully watch, not just listen, but carefully listened all the way through, evaluating his use of scripture, listening to his points, considering them against Christian theology. But it's like way worse than I thought. Um, I'm going to get into the details. This is a random Joel Osteen sermon as I hold on, I fix my, my lights, my camera, all this stuff. These are the things I do before I go live, <laughs> except today. Um, all right. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to play through an entire Joel Osteen sermon. This sermon's called Let It Go, and I don't think it's meant to invoke visions of the Frozen song, although that will be in your head by the end of all this. What we're going to do is consider it carefully, consider it thoughtfully. Um, I'm, not, I'm not witch hunting. I'm not looking for things to complain about, but they will present themselves <laughs> whether I like it or not. And this is going to be something that I hope helps you. If you're a Joel Osteen fan... I, I especially want you to watch this video. I'm, I'm not yelling like he's a heretic and he's a false teacher and you need to, you know, like we need to burn his church down. Uh, I, I want us to like really carefully think through this in faithfulness to Jesus, in love for the word of God. And because the, the true message of scripture is precious and wonderful and good, we're going to consider these things thoughtfully. So here we go. This is the beginning of his message. We're listening to the entire message beginning to end. Nothing's cut out except for... Uh, the intro part of the video, which just replays later parts of the same message. Okay, that's what, you'll see that later. So here's the opening. I like to start with something funny, and I heard about these two brothers. They were known for being very dishonest, having no integrity. They were very wealthy. One of them died. His brother said to the pastor, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll say at the funeral that my brother was a saint, I'll make a large donation to your church. The pastor agreed. The man made the donation. At the funeral, the pastor said this man was dishonest, he cheated, lied, stole, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's the opening of the sermon. Um, I don't have much to say about this, okay? It's, it's supposed to be something funny. I don't really get the joke that much, to be honest. Maybe it's just my sense of humor. Um, I think the pastor was deceptive in order to get money from this guy. That's not funny to me. <laughs> so, But I would say this, pastors in general, it's probably best if we don't start our messages with jokes that imply um, money-grubbing leadership. <laughs> like, I'm just suggesting this is probably not the best thing in the world. Uh, but anyway, it, that's, that's not really what this is all about. Here's what it's really about. Here's the second clip. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. We've got to talk about this in more detail. This is something actually Osteen has his congregation say every Sunday, every, every service, they hold up their Bibles. Now, this is not inherently, there's nothing wrong with this, okay? Creeds. The statement of a statement of faith is, is pretty typical in lots of churches throughout history to say a creed, to talk about our essential beliefs, the things that identify who we are as Christians. Um, what's strange here is the creed. 
So most creeds, typical creeds, are usually about central Christian beliefs. We believe this about Jesus. We believe this about God. We believe this about the Holy Spirit. We believe this about salvation. You know, we're saved by faith, things like that, that Jesus died and rose again bodily. These, this is like typical Christian creeds. This is, this is what I expect if there's a creed. Um, and it's okay if you don't have that tradition to say those creeds at the beginning of your service. That's fine. But what's weird is the nature of the creed. Now let's go line by line through their, through their creed because it ties in to what's wrong with the whole sermon and what's wrong with Joel Osteen's ministry in general. I, I, I don't say this to be cruel. Okay, I know Joel Osteen's like a real person. He, he probably won't watch this video because he won't give, he thinks it's wrong to give the time of day to people like me. Um, uh, but, but if he does, Joel, if you watch this, like uh, as your brother who cares about you and cares about your congregation and cares about you standing before God one day to give account for your ministry, I hope you'll consider the following. Um, so here's the creed. It says, this is my Bible. Notice that's not a statement of doctrine. I haven't actually said anything about what I believe about the Bible, what the Bible is, or who Jesus is. Um, what they say about the Bible next is very telling as to the focus of this ministry and the focus of Joel Osteen's teaching in general. He says, they say, I am what it says I am. So they hold it up. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. Okay, I would say that's true. Okay, but it's also very unclear. Um, a statement of faith here is a statement of faith about me not about Christ or the Bible, right? We went straight from the Bible to me. I am what it says I am. See, the, and the Bible is seen, I think, in Joel Osteen's teaching as primarily as something that's there to tell me good things about me. That's pretty much the function of scripture in the teaching that I see from Joel Osteen. So that, that makes sense. Um, but what about someone who's unsaved? If they hold up a Bible and they go, this is the Bible, I am what it says I am, and they're not saved. According to the Bible, they're children of wrath. Right, but Joel Osteen says he's not here to tell people they're wrong. Like that's his his agenda is to not tell people they're wrong, to not point out things that are negative. He said this in interviews and various places, and it's consistent in his teaching. So I am what it says I am. What's hidden behind that, I think, in Osteen's teaching is I will go to the Bible and find nice things for it to say about me. <laughs> that's what it ends up being. So it's never really stated carefully or clearly. And the value of I am what the Bible says I am is not held consistently because when it says I'm a, I'm a fallen man, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm lost, I'm a child of wrath, like apart from Christ, he'll never say those things to people. He will keep them out of his pulpit intentionally and deliberately. So that's a problem. Um, all right. Um, I have what it says I have is the next part of the creed. I, I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. Again, it's vague, but we can see the focus is on the, on the Bible is something that gives me things, gives me qual positive qualities and gives me positive things. Okay, this is, this is going to be prosperity teaching ultimately is what it's going to come down to. Um, creeds are meant to distinguish uniquely Christian beliefs from false unchristian beliefs. That's the main function of creeds. This isn't that at all. Um, in my own mind, when you say, I have what the Bible says, I have that has deep meaning. As a Christian, as a pastor, as a guy who studies the Bible, when I say I am what it says I am, I, I mean, I get that. I'm like, I'm a child of God because of the grace of Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm called to live as a light in this world. Jesus sends us out as lights in the world. I'm, I'm part of the body of believers. I'm part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. So these are beautiful, wonderful things, right? It's the grace of Christ, the future promises of eternal life. I have these things. But in Osteen's context, it becomes something very different. In, in, the, in the Joel Osteen context, this vague statement becomes a positive thinking mantra. It's God's favor on my money, my physical health, and my generally happy life. You'll see this over and over again. I've already studied his teaching. He delivered this teaching um, a week and a day ago at his church. And again, it's called Let It Go. I've got a link, or I will have a link below if I, I haven't already put it there. 
The next statement is, I can do what it says I can do. Again, this is super vague. So I, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Let's see what the rest of this video gives for context of I do what it says I can do. Then he goes on to say, um, and have the congregation repeat, today I will be taught the word of God. That is inaccurate. Like that, that promise is not fulfilled. As we'll find out, this is what surprised me. Joel Osteen misuses scripture in every case except one. There's one where he uses, I think, scripture properly. And every other case, we'll look at the verses themselves. This is, this is not, you're not being taught the word of God. You're being taught, Joel has a point. He's going to take a scripture out of context to try to, to, try to prove it. And um, that's wrong. Like if I love God's word, I, I would never take it out of context knowingly or, or perhaps just recklessly. So we'll see about that. Will Joel teach us the Bible or will he use the Bible to try to elevate the, the authority of his own statements? And that's what we'll see. The last phrase is, um, I'll boldly confess. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I don't actually expect this from every sermon. Like I, I would never have the church say this like thinking it's true. Like every Sunday you're like, your life is totally changed. Like, <laughs> like okay, it's just, it's just... Super high expectations is part of the preaching ministry of Joel Osteen. So he wants to create those. Um, the gospel changes your life forever. Absolutely. Every single message from my pastor changes my life forever. No, I don't expect that. I think that's unrealistic and uh, unnecessary because I have Jesus. My life has been changed. Then they say in Jesus name to end the the, the creed. Um, okay. Jesus's name. How is it being used? We'll, we'll see more on that. Let's watch the next clip. I want to talk to you today about let it go. We all go through disappointments and things that are not fair. It's easy to hold on to the hurts and think about what they said, relive the offense. We get up in the morning, and it's the first thing that comes to mind. We don't realize how much that's affecting us, souring our attitude, draining our energy, limiting our creativity. If you're going to fulfill your destiny, you have to get good at letting things go. I just realized now, next to Joel Osteen, how pale I look. And maybe I need to adjust my camera. <laughs> or I should just let that go. All right, um, here's the thing. The opening of the sermon gives, it gives you the whole sermon in a nutshell. He's like, yeah, let it go. Just, guys, let it go is, is the idea. And the reason for letting it go is what we're really going to highlight here. Um, what are we letting go and why are we letting go of it? So are you letting go of bad feelings about offensive or painful things that have happened to you? Or are you, are you letting go of like your sinful attitudes and actions um, in, in a sense of like repentance? And it's going to just be you're the victim and you have to let go of things. We'll get more into detail there. But the ultimate principle that Joel has, and this is consistent, he'll say it over and over again in, in this, you're going to get tired of hearing it, is that if you're going to fulfill your destiny, I'm quoting him now, you have to get good at letting things go. So this is a very important thing um, Uh to Joel, you, like you have a destiny to fulfill and the way you can achieve it is by what I'm going to talk about today, letting things go. Okay, letting stuff go is important. Joel has half of a good message here. And I don't want to dis I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? That you should let go of past pains and hurts and regrets and all this stuff in a sense. But there's more to it than that. And, and you know, it's half baked, so to speak. So what follows is a distorted version of what the Bible teaches on letting things go. You want to fulfill your destiny is the agenda for him. Um, biblically, your destiny is being a light in the world for Christ, knowing Jesus, making him known. It might involve losing family and friends actually in your life. That might be part of God's plan for your life is that you actually are losing relationships, not just having 
happiness and success in business and stuff like that. But that's Osteen is his success in every area of your life is what your destiny is. Um, the focus will be on this world, not God's kingdom. Jesus is like store up treasures on, on in heaven. Joel Osteen's message is going to be about storing them up on earth. Um, let's look at the next clip, which is number four. And see the new things God has in store or whether you get stuck bitter over what didn't work out. Um, th do you see this is, um, that should have been a longer clip, I think. Did I get that wrong? Stuck bitter over what didn't work out. Just make sure I've got like so many clips. Make sure that I did this right. Pulling it up now. Jesus said offenses will come. He didn't say they might come. If you're a good person, if you're nice, nobody will do you wrong. He said disappointments will come. Betrayals, things that are not fair will come. How you deal with these offenses, how you handle the hurts will determine whether you move forward and see the new things God has in store or whether you get stuck bitter over what didn't work out. Okay, we just have the end of the clip there for some reason. But yeah, the, the issue here is uh, he's quoting Jesus now for the first time. This is a, a big deal. Osteen clips are quieter than my voice. I'm, gonna, I'm boosting them up. Let me know if that fixes it. Thanks for letting me know, Sarah. Um, okay, Joel Osteen, what he just did was he quoted Jesus. He, he says, hey, if, you got to see this to juxtapose like how the scripture is being used. Like we got we to gotta get those skills to just know when Jesus is being hijacked for some purpose other than what Jesus has, right? So he says, Jesus said offenses will come. Now in Osteen's context, offenses are betrayals, things that are unfair and hurts that come against you. The offenses are personal. You're the center of the universe here. The offenses are against you personally. I'm offended, I'm hurt. Let's look at what Jesus actually said in context. So here's Luke chapter 17, verse one. I don't know here what translation he's using. using. <laughs> you'll find that Joel plays fast and loose with translations he's using. At one point he uses the Amplified Bible, but then he uses another quote later, and I can't, I can't find that version anywhere. So Luke 17, 1, uh, then he said to the disciples, it's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. What does is, what is Joel leave out? Woe to him through whom they do come. Like he's never going to talk about this part because this is negative and this will be absent from a message on the topic. Um, but when we look at this stuff in context, we find that these offenses are causing believers to sin. They're not you personally being hurt because someone offended you. They're offenses that cause you to offend Christ with sinful behavior in your life. Let me take you another passage that gets into more detail. It's Matthew 18, verse 6 and verse, through verse 9. Let's read Jesus. Joel's quoting Jesus. Let's read it here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, right? If you cause a believer to sin, it would be better for him, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. That's what Joel quoted. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. So offenses in Jesus's concept here are the things that cause you to stumble in sin. People who put sin before you, right? Um, uh, pornographic websites are putting sin before others and, and leading to them stumbling. And there's going to be great judgment from God upon the people who are promoting this stuff and creating it and pushing it like that kind of thing. People who do give false gospels, false teachings, there's going to be great judgment from God upon the people who do these things. These are the offenses. So offenses against you 
is the focus of Joel. Offenses against God is the focus of Jesus. And that's a nice summary of how Joel Osteen's teaching does things. It takes it and says, I'm going to take this thing that's about Jesus and about God. I'm going to wrap it around me. And it's about me now. And really, it's about you. And this is why he's so likable. He's so sneaking positive. I like the positivity. But I think rational people know that pure positivity is, it's like just eating sugar for dinner. (laughs) It's going to get you sick. Um, So Osteen hijacked Jesus' concern, replaces it with his own. This is his first use of scripture, and it's completely, completely wrong. But I think it's typical. Now, your wounds do matter. You listening. Your wounds matter. People hurting you, that matters. But you can't make yourself the hero of the universe here. Um, and recognize that in those wounds is a temptation, in those wounds is an opportunity for you to extend the grace God's given you towards others and those types of things. We'll talk more about a biblical view of personal wounds as we go. Let's go to clip number five. I've heard it said, if you don't heal from emotional wounds, you will bleed on people that had nothing to do with it. How many people are living wounded over how they were raised, a friend that walked away, business partner that cheated them, Instead of letting it go, they replay it in their mind. Relive all the hurt. They wonder why they don't have good relationships. It's because they haven't healed. They're living out of a wounded place. I mean, I I get why it's likable. The teaching is likable. I don't doubt that. I mean, if you're like, I like his teaching. I agree with you. I like it too. But I don't think that matters all that much. So the, the, the truth here is, that um, emotional pain you do hold on to. I agree with Joel here, right? And you should too, I think, right? If you hold on to emotional pain and hurt, you will end up bleeding on and hurting other people. That's absolutely the case. That does happen because we're holding on to, or uh, I say holding on to, I think the right term biblically is perhaps bitterness um, that we're dealing with. Um, but when we overdiagnose, if we make this a catch-all, if we if we act like this is the, the single feature of your life that determines your your, your destiny or your failure is how you handle emotional hurt from the past, then that's a problem. Um, it makes me the victim of everything that happens in my life that's bad. I'm, I'm now the victim of everything that happens bad. And the Bible allows for some of this, some of the trauma that happens to you, you're, you're innocent of. I didn't cause that. I didn't deserve it. I got it. Like read the book of Psalms. It talks about bringing, you know, David bringing trauma to God. The psalmist is bringing trauma to God. Like I've gone through this and I didn't deserve it, Lord, but I'm appealing to you. So we need to take that stuff to God with integrity. That's true. But we don't want to overdiagnose it and act like that's the source of all of our pains is others hurting me and I'm not the cause because I know I am. I mean, speak for myself here. I've, I'm the cause of the worst of my emotional suffering in life. Me. So I can't really call that hurt. I think I should call it um, self-inflicted wounds <laughs> in all reality. So imagine you went to a doctor and the doctor's like, hey, you know, uh, vitamin C will fix all your ills. All you need is vitamin C and you'll be entirely healthy. And that's what Joel Osteen's doing. He's like, all your pains and all your emotional issues, you just have to let it go and problem solved. But what about when the issues you have are bitterness in your own heart, unforgiveness towards others, anger towards others as a way of deflecting that it was you who sinned against them. And that happens all the time because we're humans. And we don't want to feel bad about what we've done. Let me read Ephesians 4. Here's like a biblical advice. And it's not just letting things go. It's, it's a little better than that. It's more thorough than that. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I don't think Joel Osteen would ever talk to his congregation from the sermons, this one and others I've heard of his, about how they deal, they're bitter and they're wrathful, they're angry, they're clamorous, they, evil, they speak evil and they have malice. Like this, but Paul did because he, because he actually cared about people's real issues and real conditions and was going to deal with them honestly. And hey, that's me, man. I've been bitter. I've got wrath issues. I've got anger issues, clamor, evil speaking, malice. Like that's me. But Joel's teaching makes you just, you would erase all this and just say, let go of the hurt of your past. Right? That, that's, that's all it is, is the hurt. It's just hurt. So for, for um, general hurt, he's going to talk about people having the death of a loved one, um, having loss, people moving away from your life. I wouldn't really call that letting it go. I would call that looking forward to the hope that God has for us. Personally, as a pastor, I would teach about things like you've lost relationships, but there's a great restoration in, in, in eternity. We're going to have this incredible reunion. All those in Christ gathered together in perfect love and fellowship, closer relationships than you've ever had before. I wouldn't call that letting go. I call it hoping for the future, personally. That's the direction I would go. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. You don't have to stop hurting about your loss of loved one, but you can be hopeful about the fact that one day you will stop hurting um, because you will have him wiping away every tear. That, to me, seems like a more biblical approach. Let's go to the sixth clip. God brings a new person, somebody great, but they're so insecure. They don't feel valuable, attractive. This new person has to keep them fixed, go overboard to make sure they know how great they are. The problem is that's not sustainable until you get well, until you let go of what didn't work out, not carry the hurt, that wound is going to hinder you wherever you go. Okay, what we're getting here is a scenario. Um, there's a problem that humans have and they have this insecurity, right? To, to, to deal with your insecurity, which is a normal human issue, I have it, you have it, um, and you're like, no, I don't. And I'm like, yeah, you do. That's, that's part of the evidence. Um, but to deal with this, I would say we need to focus on the grace of Christ. So it's not that we need to be told you're good, you're great, you're beautiful, you're attractive. We need to affirm that you have all the qualities that you feel insecure about not having. Instead, we affirm whatever you're lacking, you find in Christ. And see how it turns the focus of Osteen is on telling you you're enough, whereas the focus of Scripture is saying Jesus is enough. And here as a Christian, I find way more health in being able to say, yeah, I've got all those shortcomings and all these lacks, but I have Christ. So they don't matter that much. It's not that big of a thing. I'm not, I'm not stressed about it. It's okay because I have Christ and he is enough. So I'm, in, I'm insufficient, but that's not that big of a deal. I don't, need every, I don't need every human to think they're attractive. They need to think that it's not that big of a deal that they're not attractive. That's actually more important. Um, but that's the, diff that's the different focus here between, I think, a biblical perspective and what Joel Osteen is up teaching. Um, if you don't feel valuable, that's a tricky subject. Um, you have initial value in God's image. According to Scripture, you're made in God's image. But that value is, is damaged. There's something damaged there because, like Romans 3.12, right? He wants to tell everybody they're super valuable. And there's a truth there, but there's more. Romans 3.12 tells us, you know, that all have become unprofitable. <laughs> so you're not bringing benefit. You're not bringing, bringing value. That's the issue is that maybe I made in God's image, I have initial value, but I'm not, I'm not bringing value. I'm not, God's not getting the, the return on his investment in me. And that is true until I turn to Christ and then I'm, re, I'm redeemed. Matthew 25, 30, Jesus talks about casting the, what? The unprofitable servant into outer darkness. Obviously, Joel Osteen's never going to, teach people and warn people about these things in his study, in his messages, because 
he's committed to positivity. Um, but this is true. And, and so there's then a redemptive value. That's what I have apart from Christ. But in Christ, I become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about value there, right? Um, I become a, a child of God. But here's the interesting thing is, biblically, this is not my intrinsic value, right? While I am made in the image of God, and there's intrinsic value there. But my position before God in Christ, being the temple of the Holy Spirit, having eternal life, um, being part of the body of Christ, this is the greatest privilege of my life. But that's given by grace. So it's not about affirming my worth. I think it's about affirming my blessings. You've been blessed. You've been graced. So that it provokes gratitude instead of entitlement. He talked about the importance of believing how attractive you are. I, this strikes, to me, strikes against my Christian values because I think we need to not put such value on attractiveness. And that's where I want to be as a Christian. Being attractive isn't that important physically. It's just not that important. That's my Christian value, whereas affirming that people are attractive is somehow, some, this is something he mentioned that, you know, you needed people to tell you you're attractive. Um, it's not that important. <laughs> so um, you have to know how great you are. That's the bottom line. And that's not, it's not biblical. It's, it's about the greatness of Christ. And then anything we get is just through Christ. That's more biblical. Here's the next clip. If you're still wounded over a position you lost, you'll go to that new company, defensive, on edge, not friendly. You're treating them based on what you've been through, but they had nothing to do with it. It's much more freeing when you learn to let things go. It wasn't fair. That's okay. God will be your vindicator. He'll take care of who did you wrong. It's not your job to pay people back. They hurt you once. Don't let them continue to hurt you by holding on to it. There's a lot of good stuff that he just said there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, you don't want to project your past pains onto other people in hurtful ways. And we can mistreat others all the time. Because, I mean, that's, that, that's good advice. Don't treat others how you've been treated. That's beautiful advice. I think in Christianity, we actually even go a step further. So that's good advice. But I think I would, I, I like to remind myself of the extremity of the calling of Christ in my life. And here it is, uh, Luke six twenty seven through 36. I'm going to read a big section to you. Jesus says, not just don't hurt the innocent people because of what the guilty people did to you, but he goes beyond that and says, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. I remind myself of this passage all the time. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But love your enemies and do, to do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. And the reward he's talking about in context here in Luke 6 is treasures in heaven. Not reward on earth, treasures in heaven. So um, I just want to make that clear because I know how that would be used. If you've heard Joel Osteen, ah, oh, your reward will be great. You're going to get your promotion. You're going to get your advancement. You're going to have your breakthrough and all this stuff. And um, that's not the point. So the teaching of Jesus, man, goes way further than that. Don't just not bleed on the innocent. He's saying... If, if someone wounds you, 
don't even bleed on the guilty. You're to offer that kind of love as a Christian. And why? Because Jesus gave you that kind of love. You were guilty and, and he bled for you instead of on you. You know, and he, he, he didn't hurt you. He suffered for you. And he calls you to try to follow him in that. And that's, that's sacrifice. That's love. There is, there is across Osteen's teaching, and I don't know if you noticed it in this clip so far, an assumption of innocence. I want to highlight this and listen, consider it as we continue listening to his, his sermon. There's an assumption that everyone listening is innocent, right? He'll talk about people who've wounded you. There's no acknowledgement that the guy next to you in church might be the one who wounded you. He just talks to everybody as though they are the wounded, everybody as though they are the victim, everybody as though they're the innocent one. And um, scripture doesn't do this at all. Um, it speaks very openly and honestly to different people in different places in life. But this is consistent with Osteen. Uh, Joel Osteen says, you know, maybe you lost a job and it's assumed that it was because you were mistreated. It's not because you deserved it. Like you showed up late and you deserved to get fired. Instead, you're just a hurt, wounded person. God will give you a better job. Don't worry. If you were fired from your job because of poor conduct, like you, you have to learn from it and repent. Like you don't need to nurse fake wounds and act like the victim. And I, it's funny how this is unpopular teaching nowadays, but it's like society will not work if we don't realize these things. Right. Um, so the assumption of innocence, I think actually hurts people because it causes people who need to repent to instead feel like they need to be consoled. Right. I should repent of my mean, bitter attitude towards family. Instead, I'm, I need to be consoled because my family's so mean to me. I'm the victim of everything. I'm always the victim. I'm always the one suffering. And I'm going to, but I feel good about myself because I'm going to forgive them and I'm, I'm going to let it go. And you're like, you should actually go and repent to them. <laughs> in some, in many cases, this is the way it is. So the assumption of innocence, we can see that happening throughout his stuff. Let's go to the next clip. Um, and he'll talk about the loss of a loved one. You lost a loved one. I know that's painful. And it's okay to go through a season of mourning, but you can't hold on to the hurt. Living in mourning is going to keep the new doors from opening. You have to heal so you can see the new relationships, the new opportunities. This is kind of that like law of attraction sort of thing where it's like you, you, um, you, you don't want to live in mourning. You don't want to live in grief. It's going to like mystically keep new things and good things from coming your way. You, you want to have positive affirmations because it's going to kind of, your words are going to create reality. None of that's the biblical. It's, that's law of attraction stuff that um, it sounds good, but it's also super self-serving because you're the center of the universe at that point. But let's talk about this loss of a loved one thing. Um, this is so different than everything else he's talked about so far because earlier he's talking about hurts such as people hurting you, sinning against you. This is different. This is loss of a loved one has nothing to do with you sinning and, and or, or someone sinning against you. We're talking about the hurt of losing relationship with a loved one who died and passed away. So this is like a preacher tactic. And you can see this, it's not necessarily always bad, but it's a preacher tactic and it's a way of broadening the application of your message, right? So Joel just wants to talk about all emotional pain now. He doesn't just want to talk about letting go of hurt. He's now talking about letting go of the mourning of the loss of a loved one, which if you're me, you're like thinking, or if you're like me, you're thinking that doesn't fit your message so far, Joel. Like the loss of a loved one feels like it's a very different scenario. Um, what is the application? What's the principle he's applying here? I still don't entirely know. Um, usually what we do is we start with the biblical teaching and then we try to apply it to people's lives. Joel starts with application, let it go. And then he tries to find verses to support it. And then he applies it vaguely into all sorts of wide things, but you couldn't really rationally say what let it go is about, right? You couldn't really 
out, outline it. It's, it's just a life coach thing. He's just being a life coach here and not, a, not so much giving people discernment and clarity. So don't mourn, according to Joel's teaching, or you won't see new opportunities. Um, that's a bit vague. Um, and it probably did help somebody. Somebody in the audience is like grieving and grieving and they're thinking, yeah, you know what? I got to get out of bed. I got to get out and have relationships and friendships and I got to be at work. So that may help somebody, but it also, it feels like small help for someone who's truly mourning over the loss of a loved one. And here I would say, your hope is in the resurrection and your hope is in the good and righteous. If they're not saved, you trust in the goodness and righteousness and proper judgment of God. If they are saved, you know, you look forward to seeing them again and fellowshipping with them again. And that's a different angle though. So now he goes back to forgiving others, not to the pain of loss of a job or of, or of a loved one. He's going to shift over to forgiving others. Let's read about what he says about Peter. Uh, listen to what he says about Peter. This is, oh, poor Peter. He always gets abused by preachers. <laughs> In the scripture, Peter asked Jesus how often he should forgive someone that did him wrong. It's funny because Peter was known to be offensive. He's the one that cursed out the young lady when Jesus was arrested. He cut off a soldier's ear defending Jesus. He said, Jesus, should I forgive them seven times? The Jewish law said three times. He more than doubled it. He thought, Jesus, I'm growing. I'm coming a long way. Jesus said, Peter, seven is good, but I want you to forgive them 70 times seven. It wasn't really about the number. Jesus was showing us a principle. He was saying, I want you to live in a continual process of forgiveness. Not something you do every once in a while, but on a daily basis, forgiveness should be a part of our life. He was setting a system in place so we wouldn't hold on to the hurts, offenses, disappointments. He knew that practically every day we would have these opportunities. And the quicker you let things go, the easier it is. All right, so a lot, so some of his conclusions there are actually spot on for application of your life, um, some of them. <laughs> but, but what he does to Peter is not appropriate, okay? So it's, again, it's Joel's use of scripture is problematic. And I, th I think there's only one example of a proper good use of scripture in this entire sermon. And every other example is a, an abuse of scripture. He started with a point and he found a verse to use it, to, to use to make that point. So Peter, he says, is known to be offensive. Okay, no, he's not. Okay, no, he's not. Like, I don't see, I don't, I don't know that Peter's known to be offensive. He gives a couple examples. Peter cursed out a young lady. Uh, no, he didn't. Okay, so let's look at this in scripture. Mark 14 verses 69 through 71. Here's the actual passage. Um, Mark 14. All right. Let me get you there. And um, who did who did did Peter curse out a young lady in this passage? Um, and the servant girl saw him again. Now this is Peter's there uh, while Jesus is, is is being taken away to be crucified. Peter is there. He's nearby, and this is a dangerous moment for them, right? Peter, if he's identified as a as a disciple of Christ, he might get attacked by the crowd too. So the servant girl saw him and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it again. This is part of Peter denying that he knows Jesus, and that he's, he's a disciple. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He wasn't cursing out anybody. He was calling curses down upon himself in the old school way of saying, um, like, if I'm lying, I'm dying, right? It, it, that's what he's saying. He's like, curse. his curses are to say, if I'm 
if I'm one of Jesus's disciples, oh, I don't know the man and, and may God do such and such to me if I'm not telling the truth now. It's a, it's a, it's an oath, a curse upon himself, a swear, an oath to promise that he's telling the truth. That's what he's doing. He's not cursing out a young lady. He's not being offensive in that sense. Um, the next one is him cutting off a soldier's ear, but that passage is not about offending people. Jesus is not like, Peter, you're being offensive again. You know how I don't want you to be offensive. Peter took a sword and tried to kill a man. That is not just about offending people. Like we can't just make that about a general offense. Jesus responds to show he doesn't want his disciples using violence to spread the kingdom of Christ. That's the lesson there. Don't use violence to spread the kingdom of Christ. It's not about don't offend people. In fact, the gospel is offensive. This is ironic because Peter is actually more offensive in the book of Acts than he is in the gospels. And this is after the Holy Spirit comes as a gospel preaching man. He offends people because he won't back down from the truth of the gospel because he tells people to repent. Paul says that the message of the cross is offensive to people and he preaches it anyways. So there is no biblical rule that you can't be offensive. There's ways to be offensive, right? If it's the truth of Jesus that offends you, then I'm in the right. If it's my carnality that's offending you, now I'm wrong. But that clarity is not there. Um, he just wants to make a thing about being offensive. He says that the Jewish law says uh, three about forgiveness that, you know, Peter's like, should I forgive three times or seven times? And um, Osteen says, hey, the Jewish law said you had to forgive three times. Technically, that's not right. That's not the law. The law didn't say you had to forgive three times. It was um, uh, later rabbis, like 100 years later, whatever. There's a rabbi who says, hey, three times is good enough. That may or may not have been known during the days of Jesus. We don't know for sure. Sometimes later rabbinic stuff, it's hard to know if it was around in the time of Christ. Um, so he, he just misstates Jewish law there. Just a side issue. It's not that big of a thing, but um, we may be too harsh on Peter here. Joel's conclusion, though, is spot on. Jesus absolutely is trying to say, I want you just to forgive and forgive and keep forgiving. That's the point of Jesus is seven times 70 and all that other stuff that he says there. So it's it, where I would disagree, though, where I would disagree with Joel is the purpose of you forgiving people is not for your own benefit. It's for Christ. I had a conversation with a friend I was, I was talking to. Actually, it was Tim Barnett, buddy of mine, uh, who's also an apologist. He, and I asked him, I said, Tim, if I told you as a Christian that you're supposed to forgive, and then I asked you why you should forgive, what things come to your mind? And he goes, oh, I think I should forgive because Christ forgave me. I think I should forgive because it's, it's, it's actually sinful for me to harbor unforgiveness after I've been so graciously forgiven. And I said, yeah, those two points nowhere in Joel Osteen's message, <laughs> right? You forgive for you. You forgive so you can have big open doors. You, you're forgiving them as a means to selfish ends. And that is a problem. What is that creating amongst people? When we, when we even forgive, when even our grace is purely for our gain. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. He was saying every day we should be ready to forgive. Doesn't have to be big things. That man that cut you off in traffic, let it go. Don't let that sour your day. Your time is valuable. That's a distraction trying to get you off course, offended over something that doesn't matter. That clerk that's rude to you at the grocery store, just smile and move on. What you need to know is what he didn't tell you about the Lord's Prayer. Um, he says, and I'm quoting here, don't let that sour your day. Your time is valuable. Behind Joel's messages 
I'm just trying to help you accomplish your goals and your mission and your destiny and your you-ness and the glory of you is, is kind of what's sort of hidden behind the whole thing. What you'll never hear from Joel in this whole message is the reason Jesus said you need to forgive. Let's look at the passage he quoted and let's just read the rest of it. Okay, so the whole Lord's Prayer, right? Our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into, into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The next thing Jesus says, and this is hard to hear this. These are Jesus' words. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, you won't achieve your destiny and get a promotion at your work. No, wait, no, that's, sorry. That's not, I just read it wrong. He says, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. It's an injustice as a Christian. If you name the name of Christ, it's actually immoral not to forgive because you've been forgiven. That's not a message you're going to get in, uh, in, in Osteen's thing, right? Because he's going to say it sours your day and your time is valuable, so don't hold on to it. It's not just going to slow you down to reaching your destiny. It's going to damage your walk in your relationship with God. Like, it's going to bring you into guilt before God to be unforgiving. That Jesus' words, not mine. If you don't like that teaching, you uh, don't, don't look at me. <laughs> All right, let's look at the next clip. I've learned life is full of wounded people, people that haven't dealt with the negative things in their past. At times, they'll be disrespectful. They'll say things they shouldn't, do things that are hurtful. You can't stop the offense from coming, but you can keep it from getting down in you. How much time are you spending offended, bitter, holding a grudge? How much more could you accomplish if you would start letting things go? How much better relationships would you have if you would get emotionally healthy, if you would let go of what people said, forgive the person that did you wrong, quit reliving the hurts? It's all about you. See, what, what Joel's saying is actually kind of biblical, but it's skewed. And when you take biblical truth and you filter out essential elements, it becomes unbiblical, you know, sub-biblical, whatever word you want to use there. So here's, here's a biblical teaching. Here's a scripture we'll look at that actually talks about this, this idea of letting it go. But it's not just about you. It's not just about achieving your goals. Listen to what it's about. It's about something a lot scarier than that is if it depends, excuse me, let me read here, uh, Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So part of you not trying to get back against people is recognizing that you're not trying to usurp God's authority by taking vengeance. He's the one who brings justice. And when you try to, when you try to get revenge, you're trying to usurp God's authority here. That's a big deal. Uh, verse 20, therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And uh, th that's a long discussion on the meaning of that verse. But the, the, the bottom line is you are, you are to ref ref uh, return the opposite, kindness and generosity and grace towards those who are cruel to you. And then here we get verse 21. This is something that's not being stated by Joel. It's, you would think not forgiving and holding on to grudges and, and that sort of thing is just hindering your destiny. And your destiny, of course, is, you know, better job, more money, happier family, more smiling, 
you know, better health. Um, but actually it says here, Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When you hold on to grudges, you're actually being overcome by evil. There's a moral problem here, not just a, I'm not as happy problem. That's, I mean, it's not popular to tell somebody, yeah, you know how you're bitter? You're being overcome by evil. Evil's overcoming you. You know how you're trying to get revenge? You're trying to usurp God's authority. And so you're being offensive to God in this. You need to trust him and yield to him and let him deal with the situation. But that's not going to be there. It's all about your goals, not God's glory and God's purposes. God is a servant, the servant of your destiny. That's, that's God. That's how God is in Joel's teaching. Here we go to now. Now he would he would probably affirm everything I'm saying. Just so you know, Joel entertains contradictions. Okay, he's gonna he would probably hear me and be like, "Mike, I agree with everything you've said there. Oh, that's all true," but in his teaching, he's gonna affirm things that contradict it, and so that becomes a problem. Um, all right, here we go. This is where David in the scripture excelled. He was an expert at letting things go. As a teenager, his father didn't really believe in him. He looked down on David, didn't affirm him. When the prophet Samuel came to his father's house to choose one of the sons as the next king of Israel, his father didn't call David in from the shepherd's fields. He thought he was too small, too young, not that talented. He didn't give him a chance. It was only after Samuel didn't choose one of the other sons that David was called in. David could have lived bitter, chip on his shoulder. He felt the sting of rejection from his own family. His brothers made fun of him. When David took them lunch out on the battlefield, his oldest brother in front of all the soldiers tried to belittle him. He said, David, what are you doing here? What'd you do with those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? He was condescending, sarcastic. David could have been upset, offended, but the scripture says David turned and walked away. No, it doesn't. He knew the importance of letting things go. Had David not done this, he would have never seen Goliath. Had he stayed there and tried to straighten out his brother, we wouldn't be talking about him. Oh, Joel. <laughs> what we see here is there's a principle. Let it go. Joel's going to teach this principle, and he is going to find biblical stories that support his principle, whether they do or not. <laughs> so... Let's, let's look at now, and I've seen, it's not like Joel Osteen's the only guy who's ever done this. I've seen pastors do this plenty of times. Teachers do this plenty of times. Um, and people in the congregation do this, where they, they sort of distort the biblical story so it fits into something that they want. Um, so David's father looked down on him. We don't have anything in the scripture that tells us that his father looked down on him. It's true that his dad, Jesse, wasn't expecting David to be king of Israel. But that's not the same as looking down on him. It's important that David's not the kind of guy you would expect to become the king of Israel. That's why God picked him, because he's not the guy. It's not because of all these incredible qualities he has. So he says that his dad didn't affirm him. We have no evidence biblically to say that that's true. He said that he was too small, too young, and not that talented. Like, where does where do we get this from Jesse? We don't. We don't see this in Jesse and in 1 Samuel when you read about the stories. There's nothing there. Biblically, here's the actual meaning of David. It's not this idea that David learned to let go of his mean family's treatment and then he became king and then you could learn to let go of your mean family's treatment so you can get your destiny. That is not the message of the text of scripture. Here's the message. And you have to have Saul in your mind to understand David. So in 1 Samuel uh, 9-2, we read about Saul. 
Saul is the guy who becomes king of Israel first. And he's, he's meant to be the opposite of David. He shows you the difference, right? Um, Saul. Uh, so he has a choice son. This is Saul. Handsome son whose name is Saul. There was not a man, not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. Like, obviously being attractive is supposedly important to Joel, like telling you you're attractive. But here Saul is considered the wrong guy. And he's like the more most attractive one. Uh, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul is just, he looks good on the outside. He seems like the right guy to be king. He's bigger and taller. He's super handsome. Yeah, that's that's Saul. But God does not want Saul. This big, good-looking guy who commands respect, Saul blows it. Saul gets disqualified to be king, and God chooses a new king. And he wants to choose a king who is someone after his own heart. So uh, let's look at 1 Samuel 10, verses 23 and 24. It says, So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. This is Saul again. And Samuel said, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Saul looked, look how affirmed he is. Saul is so affirmed. Look at how Samuel's affirming him. Saul, you're the best. And the people are like, long live the king. Saul is affirmed up the wazoo here and he's the wrong guy because affirmations aren't that great <laughs> and and they can lead to arrogance and pride that leads to a disqualified destiny right or kingship or whatever as Saul gets now the point of the passage with with David being selected where he um for those who don't know the background, David is going to be selected to be the new king after Saul is disqualified. God sends Samuel the prophet and says, I want you to anoint, anoint the new king. And he goes to the house of Jesse. Samuel doesn't know which one of Jesse's sons will be the king. Jesse, this is key, doesn't even know one of his sons will be king. He's just told to come to the feast with Samuel and bring his kids. Well, he leaves one kid behind, uh, David, because he's the youngest, so he's going to mind the sheep. This is I don't know that this is an insult. Okay, they have a family business. Someone's got to take care of the sheep. So they end up leaving David behind. He's the youngest. He'll have other opportunities in the future, perhaps, to, to do this kind of stuff. It's not an insult. Okay, but um, let's read it. First Samuel 16. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. Story of David. It just doesn't fit the picture that, that Joel was giving. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab this, and said, this is the oldest son of of uh, Jesse and and Samuel thinks surely the Lord's anointed is before him um, this has got to be the guy Eliab he's he's the oldest he looks responsible he's he's large or whatever God responds do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I refused him and here's the lesson for the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart see here's the guy he's again he has affirmations he kind of like Saul David God's like no I don't want him I'm not interested in the talented. I'm not interested in the physically attractive and the biggest and the strongest, nor does he necessarily have to pick the most untalented. It's that talent and attractiveness are irrelevant to this calling of God. He's looking at the heart. As we read on, it says, um, so Jesse, um, uh, there we are. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, the next son. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, uh, The Lord has not chosen these. Awkward moment. <laughs> okay. Verse 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, well, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. 
He doesn't say the youngest, who I despise and look down upon, who I don't affirm. It's like, this is just Joel Osteen making stuff up. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for he will, we will not sit down till he comes here. Cause Samuel realizes this must be the one. He's the only one left. He's gotta be the coming king. So he sent and brought him. And now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. So he, he's a good looking guy, not as good looking as Saul, but he's a good looking guy. It's not like it's bad to be good looking. It's just not the important thing. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. So he anoints him. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him. The point with David is that God wants a man after his own heart. And that's what David is. Let me go to the scripture for that. God said to Saul that his kingdom was not going to continue and that the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. This is what David represents. David represents a guy who doesn't have the skills and the high this and that. He just loves God and he's committed to God. Joel Osteen actually teaches his congregation to be totally committed to themselves and to see God as being committed to themselves. This is what I see in his teaching. It's a very, it's a narcissistic Christianity. I mean, it's not really Christianity because you can't be narcissistic and be Christian because you're about Christ. It's not Mikeyanity. It's not about me. It's not Jeffyanity. It's not about Jeff. It's not Joelianity. It's, it's about Christ. We're supposed to be after God's heart, not our own. So if David was put forward as the best son, if Jesse had done what, what apparently Joel thinks he should have done, and Jesse had said, oh, David, you got to come to this meeting. Hey, Saul, ch uh, Samuel, check out my son, David. Look, he's, this, he's amazing. He's such an incredible son. Oh, I'm so proud of him. He's so great. I feel like God wouldn't have picked David because he wanted the lesser to demonstrate that the heart that's committed to God is more important than all the other attributes a person can have. Do you see that? But that's not the message Joel has. He, so he hijacks the scripture and uses it for his purpose. Joel says that David, quote, felt the sting of rejection from his own family. Let's talk about David's brothers now. The example he gives is that David's brothers mocked him and, and he said nothing and walked away. And <clears throat> you can't miss this. Joel presents this as though it's key to why David became king and David defeated Goliath is because in the discussion with his brother, he wouldn't say something back, but he walked away. Okay, that's not true on any level. So let's look at the text itself. Um, 1 Samuel 17, and we're starting in verse 23. <clears throat> then as he, uh, oh, let me put it on your screen as well. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. These same words is where Philistines like, Y'all are a bunch of losers. Your God is lame and, and the Philistines are better than you and I spit on you kind of stuff. That trash talk, <clears throat> you know, theological trash talk. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So David not only sees the trash talk, he sees that everybody is scared to fight Goliath. But David has a heart, a heart after God and he has a different attitude. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his, and give his father's house uh, an exemption from taxes in Israel. Who doesn't want a tax exemption? <laughs> and so <clears throat> David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David doesn't think for a second, I'll just, I'm, I'm the man, I'll take him out because I'm so affirmed in myself. He actually, it's not his estimation of himself. What motivates David is his estimation of God. He's like, this Philistine who's like defying the armies of the living God. And he sees this about God, not about himself. 
And the people answered him in this manner, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard, and this is where his brother does get on his case. When he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why do you come down here? Why did you come down here? He's, he's visiting to bring him some food. And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. Like, you're, you're, you're a little punk. You're just a looky-loo. <clears throat> come here to see the battle. You want us to fight so you can watch. That's what he's trying to... So, David, you're trying to stir up our armies to go against them, and we're just going to get slaughtered, and you just want to watch. Like, you're a horrible person. And David, who doesn't have those motives, Eliab misreads him, perhaps reading his own insecurities into David. David says, he doesn't, walk, he doesn't walk away, right? Joel, you would have thought he said nothing. He says, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? And David's response is to tell Eliab, you think this is about me? I'm not doing anything. This is about that guy defying the armies of the living God. Isn't that a cause for us to be stirred up and to, and to act on, on behalf of God? That's David's response. He, and then he turns from him, but not walking away like I won't talk to you. That was just Joel making stuff up about scripture to give a point that he had decided ahead of time he was going to give. Let's read on. There's more um, about the brother's insecurity and stuff like that. Um, so uh, he, another says the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with, the, with this Philistine. I'll go and fight him. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're a youth. And he a man of war from his youth. You know, when you're, when you're like 17, 18, you're not nearly as strong as when you're like 30, okay? You're, you're just, it's just true, okay? Uh, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he's defied the armies of the living God. Of course I'll win because he's going against God. Notice this, that um, Joel made it sound like El, uh, Jesse putting David in charge of being a shepherd was a bad thing, but this is where David learned the skills that he used to kill Goliath. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, the Lord, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. Um, Saul, so Saul clothes him with his armor, put a bronze helmet on his head, and he starts to wear Saul's clothes, but he can't fit in them. He can't walk in them, so he doesn't. So he goes off with his staff in his hand and some smooth stones. And then he kills Goliath. You know the story. Um, the point is that David wasn't mistreated here. He was misunderstood and mistreated in a moment by Eliab, by one of his brothers, but not that it's like this sort of, he was raised in this, in this cruel mistreatment throughout his life and all this sort of thing. Um, not that nobody has that. You want to get into that? Look at Joseph, okay? His brothers regularly, routinely harassed and ridiculed him, almost killing him, selling him into slavery. There's a good example for you if you're looking for that. And there's a, he's a much better example of letting go of past resentment towards family. David's not really a good, good pick for this one. So yeah, David has loyalty to God. That's the point. It's all about God. And that lesson is absent in Joel's teaching. He uses the story to teach something about you when it's about loving God. Let's look at the next clip. And the truth is, David's father wasn't fair. It wasn't right to leave him out in the fields. His brothers were demeaning, belittling. Is this true? Was it like actually wrong for 
you know, Jesse to leave David in the fields. Like where do we, this is where David wrote the Psalms. He wrote the Psalms when he was in the fields. He learned to use the sling. These things were kind of important and he never complains about it. You know, he writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, like he wouldn't have wrote that if he hadn't been a shepherd. His brothers were demeaning and belittling him. It says, um, there's a truth that's there in one moment. That's true out of their own insecurities, very possibly. But, um, that was because of their lack of faith in God's power. And the lesson is about not trusting in God's power and not loving God enough to, to put your life on the line to serve him. That's the lesson. Osteen wants it to be about your ability to rely on yourself, to be affirmed, you're attractive, you're great. And so he reverses the meaning of scripture in this regard. Um, yeah. So let's go to the next clip. But you can't make people do what's right. It's a test. Are you holding on to the offense? Let the betrayal, what they said, how they treated you, cause you to be sour? Wake up thinking about it? Or are you going to let it go and move forward into your destiny? Your destiny. It's about your destiny. Remember, it's not about sanctification and service to God. It's about you achieving your goals and your destiny. So I agree with everything except for that. The letting it go in that regard in this section. Yeah. But, but the narcissism, <laughs> you got to let go of the narcissism, man. There's a Goliath waiting for you. A new level past the offense past the rejection, past what they said. My prayer is that we will do like David and live with this perpetual forgiveness, that we'll develop a habit of forgiving daily. When offenses come, they bounce off of us like water off of a duck's back. I mean, that is, the applications are beautiful. Live daily forgiving, absolutely, totally agree. Um, the phrase, there's a Goliath waiting for you makes me chuckle because Goliath, like, he's like, there's a Goliath waiting for you. And it's like this new level in your life. I'm like, well, that's not what Goliath is about for sure. But more importantly, Goliath's not about you at all. <laughs> like Goliath isn't meant to represent the obstacles in your life primarily. It's opposition to God and his kingdom and how those who have a heart after God can overcome for the sake of God's kingdom, not their own destinies can overcome the obstacles to God's kingdom. And the most shining example of this is Jesus overcoming Satan, right? Through the implements of a shepherd, so to speak, to draw out the analogy. And that's beautiful. Um, Goliath there being a picture of, of demonic opposition against God's kingdom and Jesus overcoming it. Prosperity preachers and their promises, though, there, it, there's always a new thing coming. Do you notice this? Uh, Osteen's audience becomes addicted to hearing that something good will happen eventually. Their, hor their, their Osteen horoscope is every day's a breakthrough. Tomorrow is your your uh, your next level. Tomorrow is your new job. Tomorrow is your promotion. Tomorrow is your this and that. And it's always put out there. But scripture can't really be used honestly to support these types of teachings. Um, always forgiving though, that's absolutely key. Always forgive, but it's selfish in motive here. So that's a problem. Family member doesn't believe in you. That's unfortunate, but that's not going to keep you from doing great things. Coworker tries to make you look bad, embarrass you. Most people would be upset, start a fight, pay them back, but you're a David. You recognize that's a distraction. You let it go knowing that God will take care of your enemies. One way God vindicates you is he promotes you in the presence of your enemies. He doesn't do it in private, but in public so that those that left you out, discounted you, tried to make you feel small, they will see you promoted, honored, in a position of greater influence. 
I'm a little concerned about the general. You know what? Here's the here's the Christian heart. It's not I want to be promoted and seen in a Christian a, a position of greater influence. I want the people who have wounded me and hurt me to know Jesus. I want them to have the love and grace of Christ. I don't need them to look on with envy as I excel in my pursuits. It's just, that's a little weird. Um, but you're moving up. Your enemies are going to see it. But like, he's got a big enough congregation that he's got to know that the enemies of the enemies in his terminology of many of the people in his church are other people in his church. And they're clapping because they all think it's about them because there's, there, there's the assumption of innocence on everybody that's there. So it's just, it ends up being like this weird childhood game that we're playing. Um, Osteen makes it so that we're, we're David and he makes it so that David was always a good guy, right? But David was a bad guy sometimes. Even David was, and you're not him in the first place. So it just ends up being the self-serving, I think, narcissism that we get. Let's look at the next clip. When David defeated Goliath, the whole army was in awe. The city was cheering. Even the Philistines, the opposition, couldn't believe what David had done. God knows how to lift you up when people try to push you down. Don't let that offense in. Start letting things go quickly. Don't think about it a week and then you'll do it. You won't have to get over so many emotional wounds if you don't let the offense in in the first place. If David would have woken up each morning, thought about his father mistreated him, why did he leave me out? How his brothers were demeaning. That bitterness, the anger, the self-pity would have stopped his destiny. Do you just, you're definitely seeing it by now, right? You see the focus on you. His bitterness would have stopped his destiny. It's a, it's, he's a life coach for you to achieve your goals and your dreams. And if, if that involves you like Peter going to be crucified, if that involves you like Paul having your head cut off, right, according to tradition, if, if that involves you suffering and being tormented, that's not consistent with Joel Osteen's message because in his mind, destiny is prosperity. Um, so there's a problem there. There's a problem there. But let's, uh, let's keep moving here. When the offense comes up, don't go there. Keep your mind on the positive. Think on things that are good, wholesome, uplifting. It's not doing anything productive to think about something negative that was said about you. Relive how the person walked away, rehearse all the pain, go back over all the sorrow. That's going to keep you from healing. Let it go. That's in the past. God saw what happened. He heard what they said. He knows what you lost. So again, I'm not totally disagreeing with what he's saying here because you can apply what he just said to some of your situations where you were truly innocent and you were wounded. And then most of what he said there was actually really good advice. The problem is that if you assume you're innocent, then what you've done is there's times where you've offended others or you were 50% of the problem, right? You, you, you contributed too. And you walk away thinking, I'm the better man. I'm the better woman because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it go. And you're like, no, you don't need to let it go. You've got to repent. I'm not going to think about that. And you know, you need to think about it because you, you got to see what you did wrong. And... There's plenty of times where we got to do self-confrontation. That's the hardest part is the self-confrontation. It's pulling the plank out of my eye, right? Jesus says, get the plank out of your eye. Joel Osteen is more like, um, just walk away. Who cares what, who's got in what's eye? You're good. you got a destiny to fulfill. <laughs> and Jesus is like, get the plank out of your eye. And then you'll see clearly to help your brother with a speck in his eye. But that, that doesn't really function uh, in this sort of teaching. So humble yourself and you'll learn. Repent. Go tell them if you sinned against them. Don't just assume you're innocent. Yeah. Here's the next clip. 
If you will let it go, he'll make it up to you. He'll give you beauty for those ashes. Short clip, I know. <laughs> um, I just want to say that your integrity and character is worth more than your earthly success and health. And that's where the beauty from ashes is a nice vague concept. But the beauty here is seen as um, something that you're going to benefit from. Um, and, and your character growth is not seen as super important here. In fact, even your character growth is there to help you achieve some sort of earthly success. So that's against what James says, right? That you should count it joy when you fall into trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect worth work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's all about your character. With Joel Osteen, you'd have to rework the verse so it says something like, let patience have its perfect work so that you can like achieve your dreams, get your promotions, have your health, and have a happy family. It's all things you get to enjoy, not who you are. A friend of mine grew up in a single parent home. At five years old, his father walked out of his life and wouldn't have anything to do with him. As a little boy, he longed to see his dad, but. He wouldn't return the mother's call. In his teens, he would send letters to his father, birthday cards, happy Father's Day. He wanted his father's approval so badly just to know that he cared, but he never heard a word. He felt the rejection. Thoughts told him he wasn't good enough. There was something wrong with him, but he didn't go there. He didn't let the bitterness in, the self-pity. He said what the psalmist said, even if my mother and father forsake me, God will adopt me as his very own child. Okay, so two things real quick. We're going to go to the next clip, but um, there's this story he'll talk more about. We'll get into more detail there, but this is actually the one time he used the scripture and I thought was right. Okay, this is Psalm 2710. Um, where according to him, he quotes it, although my father and mother have abandoned me, yet the Lord will take me up and adopt me as his child. I found the translation Joel uses. Like online, people were debating. They couldn't figure out what translation he's using. Um, this was the Amplified Bible. But later on, when he quotes scripture, he uses other translations. So there's just, who knows what consistently. The, uh, the, the way this is when you don't have like a paraphrased type thing with like the Amplified uh, is when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. And to me, this is a beautiful use of the scripture. You have a family who's broken. You have uh, betrayal and abandonment from family. And you look and you say, but God, you're faithful. That's not you. You're, you're the one I need and have needed all along. And that's a beautiful use of the scripture. I affirm that. That's the one verse Joel used in a good way. When you live in a state of perpetual forgiveness, it's amazing how despite the injustice, Despite how unfair it is, you'll still be happy. You'll still enjoy your life. You'll still do great things. So your goal is to be happy, enjoy your life, do great things. Just keep that in mind. That's the goal. It's not know Christ, glorify God, serve him well, and have a well done at the end of, at the end of it all. That, I think, is a problem, okay? Um, he's a motivational speaker, and Christian character is not so valuable to him or his audience that it can be put out there as, hey, guys, I know you're going through hard times, but God's refining you, and he's making you more like Jesus. But that's not valuable enough. It's not estimated as valuable enough. And so he moves towards other more earthly things. Um, now we'll talk about a young man who's very mature, and this is, continues the story, I believe, that he already started earlier. When he was in his 30s, his father finally agreed to see him. He was so excited, it was a dream come true. He flew to another city, knocked on the door. A lady answered and said, I'm sorry, your father has changed his mind. 
he's not going to see you. I thought he would be devastated. He said, Joel, it didn't really bother me. I had already prepared if he wouldn't see me, I was going to let it go and move on. It has not stopped this young man. He has four beautiful children. He's happily married, very successful. I would have never known he didn't have an amazing childhood. Um, <clears throat> being a guy who's had issues, father issues and things that have gone on in the past, let me just say a couple things. That's very mature of the young man in the story. Very, very mature of him. But I also want to add, um, it's okay if he still feels grief. It's okay if he still has the sting and the, and, the, and the ouch of it all, even though he's letting go and he's he's being gracious and kind and he's not letting that be the theme of his life. You know, he realizes it's not his problem. It's, it's his dad's problem, not his own. That's all healthy and good. Um, it's okay still to feel grief, though, and know that God's goodness is bigger than that grief. That's okay. It's not as though letting it go means I, I just have no emotions about it whatsoever anymore. I just, I don't want people to feel that way. But if you'll notice what the young man has now, he has four beautiful children. This is the list Joel gave. Ha he's happily married. He's very successful. The implication is that by letting go of what happened with his dad, that's why he has these things. And there may be some connection that's there, but I, I think that it's just, this is prosperity stuff, right? These are all the earthly things he's going to get. Now he's going to apply it to you in the next clip. Notice how it applies. And um, yeah, you'll see. <laughs> you'll see. I have a special clip for you. When you learn to let things go, disappointments can't stop you. Unfair people, how you were raised, bad breaks, you'll keep rising higher, seeing the goodness of God. Do you get the promises? Uh, this is important, okay? Don't just turn, turn off and... Have, he's saying nice things, Mike. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. He's saying nice things. They're like, well, that's why you have to pay attention because just because something's nice doesn't mean it's okay to be believed. You will have earthly success is the promise that you're going to get. And this is a scripture that shows you how this is just incompatible with the Christian teaching, right? Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All these lists of things they go through. As it is written, listen, this is what they went through. For your sake, we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul's describing the apostles as those who were being persecuted the most. Yet, and his statement is, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not because they're going to have health and wealth and big families and all these prosperity things, right? But because they have the love of Christ still, right? I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the prosperity of God. No, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Integrity as a Christian is knowing that you have joy in spite of trials, not joy as a way of attaining an end of your trials and, and, and prosperity. It's not like a means to an end. And to draw out how incompatible what Joel's teaching is with the with the apostles and with the suffering they went through, I actually have a video I'm going to play with you. This is several years old, but it's from Lutheran Satire. It's a YouTube channel and a ministry or a group called Lutheran Satire. I got the permission to play this video for you. This is martyrs reading Joel Osteen tweets. These are real Osteen tweets. <laughs> I Okay, you might think this is tasteless. I think it's very um, helpful. <laughs> Don't speak defeat. Instead, 
declare I'm blessed, I'm strong, I'm healthy. This'll be a great year. You're too blessed to be stressed. Let it go and enjoy this day. God is ready to take you to a new level. He's ready to release a new wave of his favor. Ow! You have a destiny to fulfill. Be bold and take control of your own life. Ugh. Yeah, I'll, I'll get right on that. When condemning voices destroy your self-image, simply look in the mirror and know that you are approved by Almighty God. Hey, that's a great idea. Could someone hand me a mirror? Maybe a new set of eyeballs. People have the right to their opinion, and you have the right to ignore it. I'm going to throw my opinion at your head. Yeah, I'm aware of that, Greg. You are called to be a cut above. You have excellence on the inside. Now bring it to the outside. Well, Joel, if by excellence you mean all my spinal fluid, it's already on the outside. I've met other people that have been through things like my friend. They're bitter, angry, chip on their shoulder, stuck in life. What's the difference? They hold on to everything. You can't stop it from coming, but you can keep the poison from getting on the inside. When you bury negative emotions, they never die. You can't bottle up the anger, the hurt, the betrayal, and think that's not going to affect you. Joel, I can't forgive them. You don't know what they did. I can't let it go. They hurt me too badly. You're not doing it for their sake. You're doing it for your sake. For you. That poison is contaminating your life. When you release it, you'll step into new levels of freedom, joy, and victory. It's all about you, man. It's all about you. It's all about you. Even when you forgive, don't worry. You have a totally selfish motive. <laughs> it's... Um, do you not see it? This, this is a biblical principle, forgive, but it's not the reason biblically for forgiving. The motive is self. Narcissism takes, takes the place of all the biblical Christian motives. It becomes all self-focused. And that's why Joel Oosting's teaching is way worse than I thought it was. Um, I actually didn't realize how bad it was. You're not doing it for their sake, he says. You're doing it for your sake. There's a truth there that you should forgive lest you fall into sin and Satan's devices. I mean, in a nutshell, Scripture talks about it over and over again. Um, Ephesians 5, 21, 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Philippians 3, 7. But not for yourself. Not for you, for your sake in that sense. Here's the next clip. There was a professional boxer back in the 1990s, and he was known for his aggressiveness in the ring. He fought with such anger and viciousness almost like he was out of control. For years, he was the middleweight champion of the world, very successful. After one fight, a reporter asked him why he fought with such aggression, how he could be that driven. The reporter was expecting a standard answer, like, I'm just very competitive and I love to box. But he told the reason he fought with such anger, such hostility, was because his father was abusive. He mistreated his mother, fought with her. Their home was very violent. He told this son how he would never amount to anything. At 10 years old, the father abandoned the family, never saw him again. He said, when I step in the ring, I picture my father's face on my opponent. 
I have so much hatred toward him, I just explode. I thought about the difference between my friend and this boxer. Both had betrayals. Both had rejection. But one is living healthy, great children, being blessed. The other is angry, violent, bitter. The difference is one learned to let things go. The others chose to hold on. So there's two men. Both are successful. One of them's angry and the other one's healthy, has great children, and is being blessed. Those are Joel's words. And this sort of sounds like character matters, but the truth is what, he, what, I, what I see is you're just saying having character is just more pleasant. You just have a more happy life, you know, having this kind of Christian character. But so the goal, again, the agenda is you. Um, you can see it in the strange comparison of health, great children versus angry, violent, bitter, right? It's not about character. You can, have, you can be healthy and have great children and not have godly character. The character is a means to an end. And the end is in this world, not in eternal things. Um, the next clip is going to show this even more strongly as you see it. And I'll show with you, this is not just an, a coincidental thing. I grabbed the typical Joel Osteen teaching. I didn't grab the worst one. I just grabbed the most recent one. And this is what we get. So it sounds good. But again, the focus is you. It's you, 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 you. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That doesn't compute with Joel's thing about being happy, happy, happy. Paul talks about his, the, the grief, his daily anxieties of, of the worries about the church that come upon him every day. That doesn't really compute with Joel's thing, but we'll just pass that over because we don't want the full teaching on these things. We have a point called let it go. It gives you a perfect, happy life, and then we're going to go with it. Um, here's the next clip reinforcing this. And yes, this boxer had success on the outside, but if you're poisoned on the inside, it's going to spoil every victory. Is there something you need to let go of? Bitterness, anger, how someone treated you, what didn't work out? Don't do like him and let that poison the rest of your life. It wasn't right what they did, but you're forgiving so you can be free. You're letting it go so you can see the beauty for ashes. So that you guys can see this isn't just one sermon. This is the whole like theme, I think, of the ministry is we're going to take Christianity, but we're going to put you at the heart of it. And the purpose is to make you happy, happy, happy. This is a, a, a clip from uh, that, that got Victoria Osteen, Joel's wife, into a lot of heat. But listen to what she says about worship and how the purpose of worship is about you. And realize that this isn't just a weird thing she said. This is just the natural expression of their me-centered principles. when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. Let's open our heart to him today. You're doing it for yourself. Do it for you. Let you be the motive of even your worship. It's okay. This is highly offensive to people who love and care about the glory and goodness of God. It's annoying to those that don't that I would even talk about it. And that is a dividing line that is 
the the love of Christianity that points your your heart and your life towards God and others versus the version of it you're getting from Osteen's ministry that points it all towards you. So I don't think this is a slip up. I think it's narcissistic Christianity, uh, which is not really genuinely Christian. Notice how consistent it is. It's consistent across their messages. It's consistent all through it. I want you to forgive. Let me think of a reason why why this is going to help you so I can talk you into forgiving for selfish motives. I want you to worship. Let me think of a reason that it's going to be better for you so that I can get you to do it for selfish reasons. Let's look at the next clip. Years ago, there was this toxic waste that needed to be discarded, but nobody knew what to do with it. They had never had to get rid of something that dangerous and that toxic. After studying it, getting different opinions, a company built these big metal containers like you see on a ship. They put the toxic waste in it. They went to great lengths to make sure it was sealed very tightly and wouldn't get out. Then they buried these containers deep in the ground. They were so relieved, they finally got rid of it. They thought they were done, but 40 years later, the containers started leaking. It was contaminating the soil, water, air. People had to move away. The problem was the waste was too toxic to you. Bury anger and think it's not going to affect you. You can't bury bitterness and not have it leak out. You can't bury hatred, rejection. That's too toxic. That poison at some point will contaminate not just your dreams, your attitude, your vision, but it will affect the people around you. Best thing you can do is to get that toxic waste out of you. Let it go. You have to give it to God. God, I forgive them for what they did. I let go of the hurts, what I lost, what I didn't get. I trust you to make it up to me. Okay, so you guys noticed there was a little clip there that was silent. There, nothing weird happened there. It's just his original video. The sound drops out there for a second, and it, and, but they have captions. So what he said was, the waste was too toxic to bury. There are some things you can't bury. You can't bury anger. And then you heard what he said after that. Um, so these are really vague stories. Um, if someone uses scripture as poorly as Joel does, I wonder if he's using these stories correctly, if these, he's telling these stories accurately or not. But there's no repenting of sin ever, right? You're just overcoming obstacles that get in the way of your happiness for yourself. Now, there's a truth there that you tend to be bitter apart from Christ. But you can be perfectly happy apart from Christ. You can. And if personal happiness is the main agenda, then there's some people who find themselves happier when they live a life of self-delusion. That doesn't mean that it's a good idea. So there's a truth there, but when we exclude other important truths, we end up being deceived and ends up being very self-serving. As you can see, you, you've definitely, it's on your radar now. When you hear him talk about, it's for you, you're doing it for you, you need to do it for your destiny, and you're letting it go so you can reach the new heights. It's just uh, narcissism. This company never dreamed years later they would be dealing with the same problem, but this time it would be worse. If they had disposed of it properly the first time, they wouldn't have this difficulty. When you bury negative feelings, they never die. Like toxic waste, they're going to resurface through your attitude, through your relationships. The good news is it's not too late to do something about it. You don't have to live with that contamination on the inside. Let it go. Forgive the person that hurt you. Forgive the parent for what they didn't give you. Let go of the disappointment, the dream that didn't work out. Let go of the guilt the shame, the regret, the remorse. You can't keep that bottled up 
and reach your potential. Notice how you now handle guilt. This is new for the sermon. You, you can handle guilt, shame, and remorse by just letting it go. Really? The, the way to overcome my own failures, failures of the past is to just let it go. That's, that's the one-step formula for doing it. Um, that's not biblical, right? The concern is not God, true goodness, and holiness. The concern is self-service. He says, quote, you can't keep that bottled up and reach your potential. It's about you reaching your potential. Um, you're to let go of guilt, shame, and remorse. This is the forgive myself kind of concept. Now, I, I, I get this, um, but here's, I, I have a million problems with it, and I'll briefly mention them because I, won't, I, don't, I don't know how long this video is going to be. But um, if I say that the, the real thing is I have to forgive myself, you see what this does is it puts you in God's position. He's the forgiver. And when you have to forgive yourself, you act like you're the offended party. You're the one who was wounded by your own sins. Now you're the victim of even your own sins, and that's why you have to forgive yourself. You need God's forgiveness. Now, you do need to recognize that. You do need to trust in Christ's forgiveness, but that's very different than forgiving yourself. It's a gift you receive. It's not a gift you give yourself. Your reconciliation is provided by God on the cross, and it's provided from him to you, it's not to, from you, by you, to you, right? This isn't about you. So this is how it really works. Um, Jesus doesn't teach us to forgive ourselves. He just teaches us to trust in the cross. And when I see people who go, I struggle with forgiving myself, I try to redirect them to deal, realizing the issue is whether you're truly forgiven by God, not whether you forgive yourself. It's weird terminology. I don't think it's biblical. I don't think it fits the Christian worldview. Jesus also doesn't say, let go of your guilt. Keep this in mind, like in scripture, what, what, what does this mean? If all I have to do is let go of my guilt, do I even need Jesus? You're guilty before God. No, that's okay. I let go of that. <laughs> what does that mean? So scripture says the following. Jesus says, uh, it, it says of Jesus, he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is Jesus saying, look, here's how your forgiveness will happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shed my blood for you. I'm going to die for you that you can be forgiven. It's not you. If, if all you had to do was let it go, that's that. I mean, don't let it go, guys. Take it to the cross. And then your task is believing and trusting in the goodness and forgiveness of Christ, not in materializing your own forgiveness through your own willpower. It's something like that. Let's play the next clip. David went to the palace to work as one of King Saul's armor bearers. Saul was proud of David, loved him like a son, but over time, Saul became jealous of David. He could see the anointing and favor on David's life. Instead of being happy for him, he wanted to get rid of him. While David was playing the harp for Saul, trying to make Saul feel better, Saul threw a spear at David and barely missed him. David had to flee for his life. He had done nothing but good for Saul honored him, served him, but in return, Saul tried to kill him. David spent months living on the run, hiding in caves with Saul and his men chasing after him. At one point, David could have killed Saul. He snuck up on Saul and his men while they were sleeping, but he wouldn't harm him. And despite David being good to Saul, Saul never changed his mind. He wouldn't have him back in the palace. All right, we're going to... Uh... Okay, there's true, it's true-ish. This is true-ish. David, he's a man after God's own heart. His motive for not killing Saul and for not attacking Saul is God and not his destiny. And that, see, this is what Joel's doing. He's replacing honoring God 
is not the motive. So let's look at the text to show, like I said, every verse I think he's used has been wrong, um, except for one, his use, his use of it. Let's look at 2 Samuel 1.11. Um, Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept. Oh, wait, I jumped ahead. That's, um, I think, in the next clip. 1 Samuel 24. Yeah. 1 Samuel 24. Um, this passage is where um, we can ask the question, when David decided not to kill Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill him, why did David do it? What was his motive? That's what I'd like to notice. Now it happened when Saul returned from following the Philistines that it was told to him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. He had to go potty, in other words. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave, <laughs> in his potty cave. And then the men of David said to him, this is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as seems good to you. They want David to kill Saul. David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He didn't, he wouldn't kill him, but Saul either had set his robe down or, or something, right? So he takes and just cuts a little piece of the robe off because he wants to prove to Saul, look how close I was. I could have killed you, but I wouldn't. He's trying to show he's loyal, right? Now it happened after David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to, the, to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed and to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Notice the, the word Lord or Yahweh three times in that passage, because David's concern is, oh, God wouldn't want me to be raising my hand against the man he has chosen. God can take him down. I'm not going to, I'm not going to physically attack the man. Okay. So David, he, he holds himself back, but his motive is the Lord. He's not doing it. I'm going to hold back because I'm going to be King one day. And if I, I won't attack Saul, because, because, you know, that's how I'll get my promotion. His motives are because he's a man after God's heart. He loves God. That's his motive. Um, again, in first Samuel 26, he has another chance to kill Saul. And is this for some of you, I just want to mention, and forgive me, cause this might sound mean. I don't mean it that way. For some of you, the most boring parts of this video is when I actually take you to scripture and we read it. And I'm going to tell you that's part of the problem. <laughs> uh, the patience of learning scripture, just wanting to pull a, pull an application out of it, but not really wanting to understand it. That's what we see, unfortunately with, you know, this teaching. First um, Samuel 26, eight, then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Again, he has an opportunity, you know, to, to attack Saul while he's sleeping. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against who the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. David's concerned with personal guilt about going against what God has intended and planned. He's not just seeking to achieve his dreams and destiny. Like the motives are completely different and we need to be aware of that. Um, okay, here's the next clip. Um, we'll talk more about David and Saul and just the allegorizing of the Old Testament in order to be a life coach textbook instead of what it is. Here we go. Here's the next clip. Several years later, Saul was killed in a battle. David was made the king. When David heard that Saul was gone, you would think he would be so happy, so relieved. Finally, this man that made his life miserable, caused him heartache, where he couldn't pursue his dreams, was no longer there. Surely David would call his men together, have a big party. But the scripture says David wept 
when he learned Saul was killed. He wrote a song honoring him, saying how beloved and how gracious was Saul. No wonder David rose so high. He learned to let things go. Can you imagine writing a song about your biggest enemy, the one that tried to keep you down, about how beloved they are? A key to David's success is he didn't let the toxins get on the inside. He didn't bury the things that weren't fair. The anger, the hurt, the injustice, he turned it over to God. So again, I want to affirm, there's a lot of this that's true. The problem is that its motive is self, and it's only half of the truth. And so it's true, letting things go and this stuff. A lot of it's true. It's true-ish, right? Uh, what was David's motive, though, when he spoke highly of Saul? Was it because he was thinking, I want to achieve my destiny, so I'm going to say nice things about this guy? No. Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. This is their response. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, who was like David's best friend. And for the people of Israel, because uh, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword, then David said to the young man who told him, uh, where are you from? And there's this whole thing about the young man. David sorrowed because of the people of the Lord, because of Jonathan, his son, because Saul, who he cared about, he didn't stop caring about the person who hurt him. And it's ultimately, it's the people of God. It's the king of the people of God. It's the kingdom of God um, as far as God's chosen nation on earth. So it's his love for God leads him to grieve because he's not just about himself. He cares about others. He, it's, he's selfless, not selfish in his mourning here. My point here is this Joel shows disregard for scripture. It places self is the motive, not God. He says, quote, no wonder David rose so high, he learned to let things go. And I would say, no, the message of scripture is David rose because his heart was after God's heart, not after his own advancement. That's the opposite of what Joel is trying to motivate people to do. Even years later, he was sitting in the palace, the greatest leader of that day, maybe of any day, having conquered all kinds of territory, seen God's favor in great ways. He said to his staff, is there anyone still alive from the house of Saul that I can bless? He still had no bitterness toward Saul. He's still being good to a man that wasn't good to him. Um, this is another twisting of, of the text. Uh, I just have to, don't blame me, guys. I'm not the one doing it, okay? <laughs> um, uh, the reason David has for wanting to bless someone from the house of Saul is Jonathan, not Saul. This isn't, this isn't about what, what he thinks it is. Now, David says, is there still anyone who's left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, that was left out. Joel must have read the passage because he almost quotes it. But, um, but yeah, this is, this is left out. It's for Jonathan's sake, his best friend who died along with his dad because of the decisions his dad made. Jonathan died because of the bad choices of his father. It was sad. And so he wants to bless Jonathan's descendants because him and Jonathan made a deal that they would bless, that, that he would do this, that he would bless Jonathan. So this is all about Jonathan and David, not Saul and David. I'm just saying it doesn't fit in, in this discussion. Um, it shows disregard for scripture and a high regard for the life coach, life coach mission that Joel Osteen is on. Does Osteen know that he's misusing the scripture here? Then he's an incompetent teacher if he doesn't know. If he does know, then he doesn't care. Either way, this impacts you. You can't, you know, my, my mission in ministry here is to help you think biblically about everything. And I'm going to recommend that if you listen to teachers who regularly twist the word, even if you feel like they have a positive message, you will be crippled in your ability to think about scripture because you'll open it looking for life coach passages. 
and not studying it to learn what God has written for you to grow from. Who knows where God will take you if you'll just let things go? When you have every right to be angry, bitter, hold on to the hurt, they left you, you lost someone valuable. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's more difficult to deal with the toxins on the inside than it is to let things go. It's not always easy to forgive, but it's harder to deal with the poison of unforgiveness. It's not easy to move forward after a disappointment, but it's harder to stay stuck in defeat and mediocrity. Do you see, let me talk for a second about why Joel Osteen is so divisive of a topic amongst Christians. Because some will have heard that and been like, Mike and you other guys who want to criticize Joel Osteen, like you don't understand, that helped me through my hard time. What he said helped me. I needed that. That's what I needed at that time. And I'm like, I don't want to take that away from you. I don't want to take, up the, take away the blanket. But sometimes things that help you aren't, aren't always healthy for you, right? And so there is biblical truth you needed to hear, and you heard a piece of it there, and I'm glad it helps you in that time. But it's not the whole story. And so there's this divisiveness where some Christians feel like he's just helping me, man. Just leave him alone. And others go, don't you care about the whole impact he has? Or is it is all that's important is that he helped you, which is kind of the, the center of his teaching. Is it helps you go for it. <laughs> and so, yeah, it can be divisive because of that. Um, yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll, we're almost done. Well, we're, we're getting towards the last several minutes of the, of the uh, sermon, and we're watching the whole thing all the way through because I don't want to be seen as taking anything out of context. Here is the next clip. Coach Rudy Tomjanovich was the Hall of Fame coach of the Houston Rockets and also a great professional basketball player himself. When he was 25 years old, in the middle of a game, a fight broke out between two players. Rudy ran over to break them up. One of the players turned and threw a punch without looking as hard as he could. Just so happened, Rudy was running up full speed. The punch hit him square in the face. It became known as the punch hurt around the world. Fractured his skull, broke his nose and cheekbones. He had spinal fluid leaking out, almost took his life. Months later, while he was recovering, he was asked about the man that hit him and what he thought. Everyone was waiting his response. Surely he'd be angry, bitter. This is not right. Rudy didn't miss a beat. He told how he had already forgiven him, that he wasn't angry or upset. The reporters were puzzled. They said, this man almost ended your life. He put you through all this pain. How could you possibly forgive him? Rudy said, I knew the only way I could move forward was to let it go. I didn't forgive just for his sake. I did it so that I could be free. Maybe you've had bad breaks. You weren't treated right, wasn't fair. I'm not asking you to do the other person a favor. I'm asking you to do yourself a favor. Forgive so you can be free. Forgive so you can reach your potential. Forgive so you can see the beauty for ashes. Don't bury the toxins. Don't bury what they did. Those negative feelings are alive. They can't be contained. You have to give it to God. Trust Him to make it up to you. You weren't created to live with poisons weighing you down, contaminating your vision. You will rise so much higher if you'll get free from that. Until you can see why Joel Osteen is so popular. His content is incredibly uplifting, and it requires nothing of you. 
literally nothing. You are the hero, you're the good guy, you're a victim of everything, and you just have to rise above it. Rise above, rise above, you know, this is this is the call. And that that's pleasing, because it never confronts a person in their sin to deal with their sin issues, which is the need of mankind, because I do have sin issues, and I do need to confront those things. Um, but this is why it's so popular. I, I wish, I wish good biblical teaching was this popular, <laughs> but it's not, and that's and that's fine. Um, so he he doesn't ever say forgive because you've been forgiven. That's the, that's the mantra in scripture. You forgive because you've been forgiven. That's never there. It's forgive so you can rise up, right? Um, he says that the toxins that he talks about in this story just make you unhappy. It's not that the toxins are actual sin like bitterness, wrath, things like that. Um, you have to trust God to make it up to you. So you are looking for a deal here. You're, you're, I'm going to do this and God's going to somehow do something for me. So there's a truth there, but it ends up being narcissism. And here's a, an example of a scripture that I think is incompatible with Osteen's style of teaching. He'll affirm it, but he's a, he just affirms contradictions and then lets you muddle through it. 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again, that the purpose of your life is to live for Christ, not you. That is nowhere in, 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 in this message about letting go and rising up in destiny. Yet that is the focus of my life. My destiny is to live for Christ. And it's a, either that's a beautiful thing. As a Christian, you long for this because the Holy Spirit's working in your heart or it's offensive to you because it's requiring such selflessness that you find it annoying, <laughs> I think. Um, the next clip is a perfect example of this sort of hero view of self with no sin ever considered when we evaluate our issues. David had another great disappointment. His newborn baby became very sick. He went home and prayed and fasted, asked God to heal his child. For seven days, he wouldn't eat. He didn't see anyone. He was consumed with this baby, believing that God would give him a miracle. Unfortunately, the baby died. His men were so concerned that when they told David that he might fall apart, they didn't know what to do. David overheard and asked what was wrong. When he found out the baby died, he got up off the floor the scripture says he went home, washed his face, dressed in new clothes, then he went to the table and ate a meal. His men were so surprised. They said, David, when the baby was alive, you were so distraught. But now that the baby is gone, you seem like you're fine. David said, I cannot bring the baby back, but one day I can go to be where he is. David could have been bitter. God, why didn't you answer my prayer? God, I've served you. I did the right thing when Saul was chasing me. I've tried to honor you, and now this happened? No, David knew to let it go. I don't understand it. It wasn't fair, but God, you're still on the throne. I know you still have good things in store for me. You cannot chalk this up to oops. He butchers this teaching of Scripture, this passage of Scripture, this whole event that happens, utterly butchers it, surgically removes the guilt of David and the sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, and he acts like David is the victim, purely the victim, who has to overcome his hardships by letting it go. This is what I mean. Like, he's going to do this to you. You listen to this teaching, you're going to think that the sins you've committed are merely tragic situations you have to let go of so you can rise to your destiny. This hides sin from the eyes of the people who watch his content and then they won't deal with their sin and they'll become arrogant to the point where they're allergic to the gospel because they'll be like what you're telling me i have to repent like i'm highly offended by this i'm going back to church where joel will tell me that 
I'm the hero of the story and that I don't ever have to do that kind of thing. Let's you 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 got to look with me at just two verses, okay? Two verses to demonstrate how he has distorted this text. Here we are, Second uh, Samuel twelve thirteen and fourteen. So David said to Nathan, "I've sinned against the Lord." The sin, so you guys know, this is he sleeps with Bathsheba, has adultery with her. Then she gets pregnant. So to cover it up, in long story short, he kills her husband, so that he can't call out David on what happened. Then he takes Bathsheba in. Now that she's now that her husband's dead, he can take her in, and so she has a baby. Nathan says to David, "The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who's born to you." shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. We know that Joel acted like we didn't know the reason why this baby died. Like we know the reason why it's not the baby is not being punished. The baby hasn't done anything wrong. The idea is that, that this has been a public thing everyone knows about. And God has Israel set apart to show the holiness and goodness of God. And David has marred that. And if this child then is raised in the royal house to potentially become the next king, it sort of affirms that wickedness continually. And so this is a judgment. This is a judgment. This is not something David has to overcome. It's something he has to repent of. That's it. Um, maybe to keep Israel's uh, kingdom from being propagated through adultery and murder. Maybe to show the pagan nations around that God is righteous and he will not tolerate sin even amongst his own chosen people. But the point is that David's not the suffering victim who serves God rightly and this happens without explanation. But just like he surgically removes the sin issue from the life of David. He's going to surgically remove it from your ability to reason about your own walk with God. And um, I'd say stay away. Here's the next clip. We're almost done. There's a lot in life we're not going to understand. You can't get caught up in the whys. Part of faith is trusting when it doesn't make sense. Again, he says you can't get caught up in the whys. But again, he is, in David's story, you're supposed to get caught up in the why. Here in this particular case, you are supposed to ask the why. Oh, this happened because of my sin. And we should do this at times. You should ask why. You should say, I lost that job because of my continual sin. I got those bad grades because I was lazy. I, that relationship fell apart. Fell apart excuse me. I, I really did just say fell apart, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but, but that relationship fell apart. Because I mistreated them. It's not just the wound that they did to me. Sometimes you have to do this. Otherwise, you're like, you end up blinded. Like you're the person saying, not today, Satan, when it's God saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching you a lesson. And you're shaking your fist and saying, not today, Satan. And I'm trying to wake you up to get you to repent. But you're like, not today, Satan. You know, and that does happen. Um, so you need to, don't be deadened in your ability to listen to the correction of God because you see yourself as the hero of the story in every scenario. This is why I would never expect um, Joel Osteen to listen to this video, right? Or for his followers to give it any time, generally speaking, because it's negative to them. And negative means bad. But correction is always negative. Negative sometimes is exactly what you need. Sometimes you have to subtract. <laughs> and it's a positive. Um, pun intended, I guess. All right, here's the next clip. A year later, David's wife had another baby. They named him Solomon. He became the king after David, the heir to the throne, and the wisest man that ever lived. Had David stayed in despair, had he not washed his face, let go of the disappointment, he would have never seen the king that was coming. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, this is not about the power of positive thinking that David exhibited. It's about the grace of God that he so graciously started to use this broken situation. He corrected it. He demonstrated his righteousness through judgment. But then he starts using their broken lives to bring out his glory. The message here is the grace of God, not 
the power of positive thinking. In difficult times, when you don't understand, you could be bitter. If you'll just let it go and keep trusting God, like David, you'll give birth to a king, something greater than what you've imagined, something where you don't think about what you've lost. This is the allegorizing of Scripture, right? You're going to give birth to a king. Your Goliath is your next job promotion. The king is your, I don't know, you, you started a new business and it took off or something like that. And um, I, I like allegories in scripture, but can I say the primary allegories in scripture are about Jesus, not about me and you. And so I have a series called Jesus in the Old Testament that emphasizes all these beautiful allegories. I love this. Okay. These pictures of Christ. And I have a link below if you want to check that out. It's it's the most wonderful series I've ever done. The most spiritually rewarding thing I've ever done as far as studying the Bible is this series, Jesus in the Old Testament. But it's not about you defeating your Goliath or you giving birth to your king. It's about Jesus, man. It's about him. And, um, and anybody who finds that bothersome like something's wrong with you. Like you don't realize who the king really is, is Jesus, is not you. Um, here's the next clip. I heard a story about an eagle. It swooped down and picked up a mole off the ground, grabbed it with his talons and held it close to its chest. This was unusual because an eagle wouldn't normally pick up a mole. They eat fish and other things. As the eagle was flying, holding this mole so close, it began to get tired, started getting weaker, flew lower and lower, finally had to land. On the ground, the eagle lost all of its strength, fell over and died. The little mole scurried away unharmed. It's very puzzling. A veterinarian discovered that the mole had very subtly bit into the eagle's chest. The eagle couldn't feel it, but it punctured the eagle's heart and caused it to lose blood pressure and eventually pass. Are you holding on to something that you don't realize is killing you? Anger, bitterness, guilt, shame, that's draining the life out of you. That's taking your joy, your peace, your creativity. How much higher could you fly? How much further could you go if you got rid of these things that you're not supposed to be carrying? It's so subtle because it's there's so much truth there. But in the end, it's about you flying high. It's not about it's not about God and his glory and and you knowing him, making him known, storing up treasures in heaven, not caring about the things of this world as much as those eternal things that are of great value, knowing that his his pleasure living for his pleasure is enough, even if it involves hardship and pain and suffering. And it's not about that, right? It's about you flying high. You're going to you're going to you're going to fly high, man. You got this. There's no guilt. There's no sin. There's no glory to God. You're just going to fly high. Today can be a turning point. You know what's more powerful than negative emotions? A decision. When you let it go, when you wash your face, when you say like Rudy T, I forgive, then you're moving toward the king that's in your future. Here it comes. You may have buried some toxins. You may be carrying some things that you shouldn't. That's okay. You can release them right now. This is your time to be free. If you'll do this, I believe and declare you're about to soar to new heights. New doors are about to open. New friendships, healing, restoration, breakthroughs, the fullness of your destiny in Jesus' name. And if you receive it, can you say amen today? Why would some Christian be very happy about that and another one, like me, have a problem with it? Um, 
for those who might not understand. Um, I think Jesus's name is being used here, and I'm happy his name is there, but I think it's being used as a magic phrase. Jesus is used to empower me to reach my destiny. And let me quote to you, soar to new heights, new doors are going to open, new friendships, healing, restoration, breakthroughs, and the fullness of your destiny. In other words, narcissism. It's absent of God. It's absent of God as my purpose. Instead, God is the one helping me achieve my purposes, whatever those are. You're, you're kind of free to fill in the blank on what your purpose is going to be. God's not giving you the purpose. He's helping you achieve the purpose that you're sort of picking out of a hat. Um, so being so po- focused on personal gain is not the message of Jesus. Let me, let me read to you Philippians. Let's go to Scripture, that boring old book again for actual clarity on what we're supposed to be <laughs> focused on. What things were gained to me, Paul says, these I've counted loss for Christ. He's not just letting go of wounds. He's letting go of the things he thought were great, the things of earthly success and pomp, the things that would people would think, I'm flying now. He's like, I let go of that. They're loss. What for? For, for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of what? My purpose, my destiny, uh, healing, restoration, breakthroughs, new doors. No, for the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I, just knowing him is worth anything else for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. They're nothing that I may gain Christ. I just want Jesus, man, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him, know him and the power of his resurrection. That's eternal life, not just things in this world and the fellowship of what his sufferings, not, not, not new friendships and healing and restoration and breakthroughs, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The two driving factors for Christians are A, knowing Christ, and B, eternal glory, the resurrection, not new doors opening, soaring to new heights, breakthroughs in the, full, in the full, fullness of your destiny. Uh, no. Now we get to the part that gives every Christian pause. This is the end of every message from Joel Osteen. He, and they tell me, and I, and I have paused too. I'm like, he preaches the gospel though, right, Mike? Like every time he ends his sermon this way, and it might make you think you then can't really um, have fair criticisms of Joel Osteen. Uh, here's how he ends his sermon. And I'm not entirely upset that he's doing this. Let's, let's watch it and then talk about it. I'd like to give you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Come into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. If you prayed that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. Love to send you some new information on your walk with the Lord. Just text the number on the screen. I hope you'll get into a good Bible-based church and keep God first place. And that's where it cuts. Like, I, I didn't cut him off. That's his own video that does that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, before we get to his, his ask for money, we'll talk about it in just a second. That's the last clip I'll share with you. Um, the prayer is right. Okay, the prayer is right. I rejoice that Christ is preached here. Okay, the prayer is, is right. But here's the part where I have a problem. Okay, it contradicts everything he said so far. Because you're the, you're the victim. You're the, you're, you're the one who has to overcome. And you're going to sort of new heights. But he uses in the prayer, I repent. And I make you my Lord. Well, I'm in understanding that simply to mean, Lord, I've lived a life of where you're not Lord. I've sinned and I'm turning from that. I'm turning to trust in you for, my, for grace and forgiveness. 
Joel has inherited this doctrine from prior Christians, but it's not uniquely Joel Osteen. His uniquely Joel Osteen stuff and what compromises 98% of his stuff is not that gospel. And so there's, Joel embraces contradiction. This is why it's hard to work through his stuff. And if you realize it's just contradicting, then you go, okay, the vast majority of his stuff and his unique contribution is effectively a kind-hearted narcissism. And then he tags onto it um, stuff like, I hope you get into a good Bible-based church. That's what he says. I hope you get into a good Bible-based church. But these are empty words from someone who doesn't have a Bible-based church, right? At least not in his teaching. Maybe Lakewood Church in Texas, it's massive. It's got tons of people there. Maybe they have some great Bible classes going on. I don't know. Not from Joel's teaching, though. That's not Bible-based. His teaching's not Bible-based. That's where my criticism would be there. I actually would think a church that big, they probably got some people there that are serious about trying to bring scripture and and sort of like come alongside underneath and and bring in real good teaching and thank you i'm glad you guys are there okay i'm not trying to criticize you probably a lot of good stuff happening at liquid church but the main teaching is very problematic so osteen will not deny the gospel he'll affirm it on occasion but the other stuff he affirms seems to be in worldview contradiction to the gospel and that's what he mostly talks about now the last thing is this i always heard uh, Joel Osteen say that he never asks for money, but I haven't looked at his stuff in a long time. And so here's his last clip. They do ask for money and they do it in, I think, a despicable way. Thanks for being a part of our YouTube channel. We post new videos right here every week to keep you inspired and encouraged. When you subscribe to the channel, it helps to get the message of hope around the world. If you've been impacted by our ministry, let us know in the comments below and share this page with a friend. We also want to take a moment and thank you for all you do to support the ministry with your donations and offerings. You help keep the ministry going. When you give, I believe God will open the windows of heaven. You'll see his favor in new ways in your life. I know our best days are still up in front of us. We love you and we'll see you next time. When you give... The windows of heaven are going to open up. So there's not just an ask. There's a promise that in your giving, you're going to get more back in return. And that's that's how everything is because it's the narcissism of whatever I'm asking you to do as Joel Osteen, I'm, you're going to get something for yourself. There's a selfish motive behind it. So look, I don't care how much money people give Joel Osteen. I don't care how rich he is. He gets his treasure in this life and that he can have all he wants. I don't really care. I'm not jealous of that. I'm not concerned that it's, he's got this mansion that he lives in. I don't care. You have all that, all, you, all, the, all you want, it's all going to burn. <laughs> the concern is that he's actually training people to be selfish in even their service to God, that it's ultimately to get something from God. So not only is there an ask, but it's an ask with a promise that is not right and not proper. So here's my conclusions on Joel Osteen's teaching. For those who um, disagree, feel free to disagree. I, I think that this is accurate, okay? Um there's an assumption of innocence in his teaching, and it makes people allergic to the gospel and allergic to being confronted about sin issues. And we need to be confronted. The, 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 the word of God is profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. But you, you can no longer use it for reproof and correction in that sense. It can only be used as, as a life coach text. Um, the gospel itself would be offensive, even though he alludes to it at the very end of a message because it tells you about your sin before God. There's a total, second thing, there's a total disregard for scripture's meaning. Um, this is an offense to God and it makes us biblically stupid. It just makes me dumb because I, I, I read David's story and I'm not reading David's story. I'm reading life coach principles from Joel into David's story when they're not there. 
I can't get the meaning of scripture if I come with life coach principles that I project onto the Bible. There's also a careful avoidance of important topics. This is the third issue. Um, Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, hey, Ezekiel, you're a watchman on the wall. And if you don't warn people that there's danger coming their way, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. There's a responsibility for spiritual leaders to warn people about sin that may destroy them. And by Joel refusing to do this, I think he's actually abandoning an important responsibility as a spiritual leader. And he's, he has an accountability before the Lord for this. And um, that's a big issue. Avoiding important topics of sin, even if he was asked and he goes, oh no, I affirm that. Yeah, yeah, homosexuality is sin. I, I would affirm that. But, but he won't teach about it and he won't confront about it. And so it becomes a problem. Is he a false teacher? It depends on what you mean by the term false teacher. Let me say this. Joel embraces contradictions. So on one hand, he'll offer things that are contradictory to biblical truth. And on another hand, he will then affirm the gospel. So what do you do with that? He's a mixed teacher. Look, out of his mouth in one spot comes false teaching. Out of his mouth in another spot comes right teaching. My concern is this. The ratio is pretty high on the wrong side. And so... Um, maybe Lakewood Church as a whole is different, but Joel's teaching being available to people quite more broadly than just the local church that's there is a self-focused message that will make the true teaching of Scripture offensive to people. His teaching can harm you. If you're a follower of Joel Osteen, my encouragement to you would be, let it go. That's I kind of wanted to end it on. I thought that was a good. I thought that was a good way to end. Let it go. <laughs>